Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. In different parts of the world, in America, in our community, in your family, the once bright light of Christ is dimming. Oxford University was once one of the great centers for Christian learning in the world. Oxford University, the motto there is Dominus Illuminatio Mea, which means the Lord is my light. One of the colleges associated with the university is Balliol College. It's one of the oldest and most prestigious colleges in that network. And in October of 2017, they banned the presence of the Christian Union from participating in the festivities of the opening day when the students move in. Why? They said it was because of the history of Christianity, which, is, which has, a, in their words, a tendency to harm and to be bigoted and to make people feel unsafe. And when you've got kids coming onto campus, we can't have them feeling unsafe. The once bright light of Christ is growing dim, even in a place like Oxford University. There is a group of people that, uh, people like me and people who lead churches and people who think about uh, where the church is headed and what, how, you know, what, how does faith work and how do we tell people about Christ. There's a group of people that we are coming to identify and we refer to them as the nuns. The nuns. It's a group of people that when confronted with a list of religious affiliations, when they get to the bottom, there's a category that says none. That's the box they check. And so we're beginning to see them, have seen them on the radar for some time now, and uh, we're beginning to kind of track what's going on with the nuns. It is my belief, and it's not just my belief, it's the belief of almost anybody that's in the role that I have that that is where it's at for the next generation. That's the group that we've got to reach. That's the group we've got to figure out how to connect with. And uh, it's a complex thing to, to connect with the nuns. Those that would be referred to as nuns check the nun box when asked about religious affiliation. That number is at about 25% of our population today, a number that has tripled in the last 15 years. That should frighten us. That is an alarming rate. The Pew Research Center, which is one of the most prestigious polling centers we have, in a survey in 2007 78% identified with an affiliation to Christianity. That was 2007. In 2014, that was down to 70%. That's a dramatic sociological shift. The unaffiliated, the group we now call the nuns that refer to themselves as having no religion, in 2007, there were 16%. In 2014, there were 21%. A child today that is 10 years old who loves Jesus and says his prayers in another seven years and this data keeps tracking, what kind of world will he be living in? 
there's an Ipsos poll that was released in 2017 that analyzed the, the views of about 20 countries, their views of religion, and it discovered that 39% of Americans agree that religion does more harm in the world than good, including Christianity. So 4 in 10 Americans think that Christianity and religion in general is bad for the world. The once bright light of Christ is dimming in a lot of places in the world. Increasingly these days, there are people in your life who just are not interested in Christianity. And the reason that they cite many times is the behavior of Christians. And yet, when you read the Christian Bible, you discover that it expects the Christian community to shine. Philippians 2, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. The idea of a bright, shining light is a fairly common and strong theme throughout Scripture. It really begins in the Hebrew Bible, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. I, I refer to it these days as the Hebrew Bible. The book of Isaiah com- contains many references to a light shining. Isaiah, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Light shining to the world to bring about salvation. Jesus seizes on this idea in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do I light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The expectation throughout the scriptures is that the Christian community would shine. Today I want to talk about how. How do we do that? I want want to backtrack a little bit. Uh, We're going to take a look today at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. I know some of you track along in your Bibles and I heard somebody talking this week about all the notes they have in their Bible from other sermons. I just, that just trips every trigger I've got. So uh, keep doing that, right? Keep doing that. But Paul has quite a bit to say. He wants to tell us before he gets to the shining part. He's got some things that he wants to say to us. Today we're, we're looking at four things, and we're going to unpack this passage. The first thing Paul talks about is motivation. Motivation for the Christian life and for Christian community. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I would draw your attention to two key words in that passage. The two words I would have you highlight or circle or take note of. First one is therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, you need to ask yourself, what is it therefore? second word I want you to see is the word work out. And you're like, Brett, that's two words. Well, in Greek, it's one word, so I'm calling it one word. And I was going to tell you that one word, but it's like a mile long and I would mess it up. But therefore and work out. So what is therefore 
therefore. It's there because Paul has a call to obedience that flows directly out of the passage that precedes it. So when you see therefore, you got to go back. When you see therefore, it means put things in reverse, go back and review what you just read because what I'm about to say has something to do with what I just said. We looked at uh, this passage that precedes this in message number five about, I don't know, it's been six or seven weeks ago now. And we called, we called it uh, a new song. And we called it that because this passage that we, we, that, the passage that we read that day um, is some kind of poetry or some kind of song that Paul kind of laid his hands on to use in Scripture. Um, but it was something that they were familiar with. It was some kind of song or some kind of poem that they were, they'd seen it before. When he used it, it he was on, you know, today we would refer to music as sampling. He kind of samples something for them. And here's what it said, uh, Philippians 2, verse 5. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, shall be read this for us, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross, and then come the words, therefore, work out your salvation. This is an important thing for you to understand this morning. We don't, we don't obey Jesus so that he'll do stuff for us. I think that there are people that, that follow Jesus, and the only reason they obey is they're thinking, well, if I do stuff for Jesus, then he'll do stuff for me. We obey Jesus because, he's all, because of what he's already given to us, which is his life on the cross. Now, I know you know that because you come in here every week and I talk to you in one way or another about the grace and mercy of God. I tell you all the time, I'm preaching the same sermon. I'm just using different words. Like the message doesn't change. He went to the cross. He purchased our forgiveness. We have grace and mercy because of that. We are free. That's my message. I mean, that's always going to be my message. That's the gospel. I'm always talking about how we are saved by grace and not by works. This is really important to understand because Jesus has given himself for us. And then so we hear these words, therefore, work out your salvation. So I want us to think about the word therefore, but, but, but then we, we, we just came to the other word. And that word that I want us to focus on is work out. It says work out. It, does, it doesn't say like every other world religion, work up. There's a difference. We're not told to, to work up our salvation. We're not told to, you know, um, do a bunch of good deeds and obey God in order to work our way up the ladder and achieve and to climb higher and, and to get closer to God. That's not what we're being told. And I don't, I don't at all want you to leave here this morning thinking, well, Brett just told us to work harder, to try harder, to do more. That's not, that's not the message. If that's what you take away, you're not hearing me. It says, work out your salvation. This is important, and so many people miss it. If I were to ask you if God is pleased with you, is God pleased with me? If I were to ask you that this morning, you, you would likely take some form of mental note, some kind of inventory on your behavior in the last week. That's probably where your mind would go. 
you know, is, is God pleased with me? Well, let me, let me think about how I behaved this week and, and see what the inventory is. You might even go so far as to rank yourself each day on how you did. I wish I could get you to stop looking at God like that, and I wish that I could get you to see that what this passage is teaching us is that we do good because God in Jesus Christ has already done good for us and to us by giving himself for our sins. That we don't work up our salvation, which is uh, a good thing because there are a lot of days for me, and I just expect for you too, that if we were rating ourselves on a scale of one to 10, we'd see a lot of twos, threes, and fours, right? There's some days where you're just like, oh, dear Lord. I mean, if I got to rate myself, <laughs> I didn't do very good today. I made a trip to Indianapolis on I-70. I didn't do very good today. We work out our salvation. We do not work up. Motivation is critical. I, whenever I do the Jesus talk with people, I talk about this idea of, I want you to do the right thing for the right reason. There's a lot of people in churches across this world this morning that are doing the right thing, but they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Here's what I know. If you do the right thing for the wrong reason, you will not do it for very long. You'll get exasperated. You'll get bored. You'll get exhausted. You're just going to come to a place where you say, what, what is the use? I'm just tired of doing this. When you do the right thing, for the wrong reason. If you have had an alcohol problem and you've tried to quit and you tried to quit for any other reason than yourself. I don't, I've, I've never struggled with alcohol. It's not ever been something that I've had a hard time with. But I've talked to people and I've heard it enough times that if you're going to quit any kind of addiction, you can't do it for your mama. You can't do it for your wife or your husband or anybody else. You've got to do it for you. And if you do it for any other reason, your likelihood of failure is pretty great. When you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it seldom lasts. So what we've got to figure out is doing the right thing for the right reason, and I'm telling you, and I tell people in the Jesus talk, I tell you this all the time, do the right thing for the right reason. What is the right reason? You have been forgiven. And so when you wake up in the morning, your first question should be, God, how can I glorify you based on what you've done for me? I just want to live my life as a thank you note for you. How do I do that? Right thing for the right reason. That's motivation. Benjamin Franklin had an interesting approach to the ethical life. He didn't claim to be a Christian. He was a deist. <clears throat> Deists basically believe in a watchmaker-type God. Um, the idea is that God made the world, he wound it up, spun it up, and just let it go. Took his hands off of it, doesn't touch it, isn't involved. That's the deist approach to God. Doesn't mean they don't believe in God, they just don't think he's involved. Franklin was really into ethics and had a lot of, he'd read a lot of Eastern theology. Um, he had read the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't like the parts about Jesus being Lord in the scriptures, but he loved the teachings of Jesus. He thought Jesus was a good man. He liked him as a teacher. And so Benjamin Franklin came up with a list of his own 13 virtues, which he thought were the best virtues of all. 13 of them, you see them there. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness. <laughs> 
kind of funny to me. Tranquility, chastity, humility. Humility made the list. And he, he, by his own admission, said he got that from Jesus. He was so into this that he devised his own accounting book. And, and there's a picture of it for you to see. And he would take a, a certain week and he would devote that week to one of those 13 things. And for this particular week, you can see at the top, he's written temperance. Temperance is there. And so he's really focusing on temperance. But down the side, you see that T-S-O-R-F-I, you know, all the way down the list. That's all the other ones that he's working on. He's tracking them all as well throughout the week. Each day of the week, he goes back. And if he does a good job, then the slate stays clean. But if he doesn't do a good job, he puts a black mark in there. And if you can see that, I don't know if you can see that, but on Sunday, when it comes to order, he got two black marks. I don't know what he did, but he made a mess. He did this for years. One of his biographers said that it, at the end of his life, he was profoundly disappointed by his inability to make moral improvements in his life. Benjamin Franklin was a brilliant, brilliant man. But he didn't know the motivation for ethics. And he didn't know the power of Christian ethics. The second word I want us to focus on this morning is the word power. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act. It's an important phrase right there. If you've got a pen in your hand, circle that. It is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is at work in you and God is at work in your heart. Now don't get flustered by that phrase, fear and trembling. You read that and you think, oh, you know, fear and trembling. Oh, goodness. You know, it's like old time revival meeting, fear and trembling. We're supposed to shake and be scared and that's not, that's not what this is. As if God might be angry with you and want to punish you. That's not what this is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in your midst, working in your life. Every area of your life is holy ground. And at that point, you're not out there on your own trying to live the Christian life. Every step you take is sacred ground because Christ is there in your presence. It makes it holy. It makes you holy. He is with you. So this idea of fear and trembling is really more about respect. It's really more about recognizing that, <laughs> whoa, I'm not on my own here. He's working in you both to will and to act. Think about that. God is in you working, not just to help you act like a Christian, but to will to act like a Christian. He gives you the want to. Paul has said this before. In fact, he said it before in the letter to the Philippians, being confident, this is Philippians 1, uh, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is working in you both to will and act according to his purposes. You're not on your own. You're not trying to muster this up by yourself. You don't have to do this by yourself. Honestly, I marvel at people who gravitate or show any interest in any of the other world religions. I, I, I don't understand why anybody would even pay any mind 
to any of the other world religions. It, it makes no sense to me. Buddhism? Buddhism is extremely strict in its moral code. Buddha not only said that you have to extinguish all desire, whether it's positive or negative, but you have to do this on your own. It's important to the Buddha that, if you, that you are on your own. The, the power to curb your desires, the power to behave better is in you and nobody else. And nobody should help you with it. Nobody's going to help you with it. There's something called the, the Dhammapada, which is a Buddhist text. And I want to read you something from that. It's central it's a central text to Buddhist faith. It says, by one's self is wrong done. By one's self is one defiled. By one's self is wrong not done. By one's self surely one is cleansed. One cannot purify another. Purity and impurity are in oneself alone. I'm just going to tell you, that if that is true, if I believe that, game over for me. Game over for me. I, I would be so depressed if I thought this was the truth. That I'm, I'm on my own in my ethical and spiritual life. I'm on my own. It's, it's all on me to do it. Thank God that the Christian Bible teaches us that God is at work in us, even to will, also to act in accordance with with his purposes. We work out, but God is at work in us. We open our wings, but God is the uplift. We open our hearts to him, and he is the one that affects the change. It's possible that you've come in here this morning and, and you're on fumes, spiritually, maybe in every way. I talk to you once in a while, and, and I, I hear that from you once in a while. Brad, I'm just, I'm gassed. I don't know how much longer I can do this. I want to encourage you, and my encouragement isn't going to be try harder. I'm sick to death of that message. I'm sick to death of hearing preachers tell Christians to try harder. My message is this, ask God to have his way with you and in you. Ask him to show you how to do it. Ask him to help you. You are not on your own. I've met some Christians, a lot actually, who what they needed to do was to just relax and embrace God instead of trying harder. I see Christians that are trying harder and they're, all they're doing is wearing themselves out. Right thing, wrong reason. Open your heart to his truth and grace and watch him change your life. That is what this passage is saying. So we've talked about the motivation in the Christian life and community. We've dealt with the power of the Christian life and community. What about the character? Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. It would be easy to mistake what Paul is saying here. It would be easy to think that the admonishment here is to work out your salvation and it boils down to don't grumble and complain. 
It'd be really easy to read that and think, oh, you know, if I'm, then it just means don't grumble and complain. If I just do that, then I'm good. No, as if all of the Christian life is defined by not grumbling and complaining, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He doesn't say don't grumble. He says do everything without grumbling or arguing. Your emphasis should be on the first part of that verse, not on the second part of the verse. Do everything that I've been talking about so far in this letter without ruining it with grumbling and complaining and arguing. So the big question that we would ask then is this, what is the everything that we are supposed to be doing? I'll take you back to Philippians 2. It's some of what shall be read for us. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's the everything that Paul's talking about. As you try to do that everything, do that without arguing and complaining. And I'm just going to tell you, the secret sauce in that whole thing is the word humility. I think that the word humility is the most underrated word in the, in, in the English language. If you, if you just would focus in on humility, your walk with Christ is going to be so much richer, so much stronger, your ability to resist temptation, your ability to be in relationships with people, everything's going to go better for you as you come to learn humility. Your anger problem is going to be diminished as you learn humility. Humility is where it's at. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then we get the song or the poem that Paul included about giving himself on the cross for mankind. And we're to have the same mindset that Jesus had and we're to be loving and humble and benevolent. And so to understand what Paul's saying is, is as we've read it today, it's not that the whole of Christianity is defined by not grumbling and complaining. That's very, very short-sighted. He's saying, do everything that I've been saying, love, humility, without the thing that will kill it. And the thing that will kill it is grumbling. Grumbling. Just sounds bad, doesn't it? Grumbling. I mean, you, you ever just focus on how we phonetically say words and how they sound? Grumbling. Grumbling is like listening to a piece of your favorite music. And all of a sudden, this random misplaced chord is put right in the middle of it and it ruins it. You take this beautiful song of Christ's humility and you add grumbling to it and you ruin it. Let's talk a little bit about grumbling. Grumbling it just sounds bad, just saying the word. Now, it sounds bad in English. If you want to hear it in Greek, it sounds really bad in Greek. Goluzo. Goluzo. I mean, just, there's no way to dress that word up. It just sounds bad. Don't do it. Don't ruin love and humility with goluzo. Not only does the word sound bad, it has somewhat of a rich biblical history. In the Hebrew Bible, what we might refer to as the Old Testament, you're going to hear me refer to those differently in the future um, for reasons that I could explain to you in private if you want me to, and maybe I'll do it in public one of these days, but it just takes a little time to 
lay that all out for you, but I refer to them as the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, Christian Bible, New Testament, okay? So when you hear that, I want you to be able to, to distinguish those. But in the Hebrew Bible, you, you might recall the story of, of this, there's a scene of grumbling, very famous scene of grumbling in the Hebrew Bible. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt after hundreds of years of being a slave nation and just weeks after their rescue, they get a little hungry. And they start to grumble. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community, the whole community, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Poor guys. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Oh, listen to this victim song. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Would you like a little cheese with your wine? Instead of saying, God, thank you so much for bringing us out of Egypt, we're kind of hungry. Could you possibly, is there anything you could do about that? Could you help us? No, we can't do that. Let's grumble. And you know what happens next. He gives them manna from heaven and satisfies their bellies. But it isn't long, poor little fellas, before they get thirsty. Do you think that recent history is going to affect the way they respond to God this time? Oh, no. Do you think they would say, well, the Lord rescued us from Egypt, and when we needed something to eat, he gave us something to eat. Maybe we should just ask him for something to drink. I mean, I'm sure he, he loves us. He would give it to us. That's not what they did. That's not how they thought. You skip to Exodus 17. It says, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Grumbling is complaining in the face of God's goodness. There are two groups of people who are most prone to grumble. The first group is a, is, are the people who are adverse to change. They don't want anything to change, and if it changes, they're going to let you know about it, right? They hate change. Don't change anything. Don't change the radio station. Don't change the carpet. Don't change the drapes. Don't change your hairstyle. Don't change anything. The second group is addicted to change, and they're not happy unless everything's changing all the time. And, and if it's not changing all the time, they grumble. And let me be clear. There's a big difference between constructive criticism and grumbling. Constructive criticism sounds very, very different from grumbling. Let me just differentiate the two for you. Constructive criticism sounds like you're hoping for improvement and a flourishing in an organization or a person, you're hoping that it will improve for them. You're, you, whatever you're going to say, you're hoping will be received well, and you're hoping that it will improve the situation, and it comes through in the words you say and the way you say it. The way you say it. Did you hear that part? The way you say it. But then there's grumbling, and it sounds different. Grumbling sounds like you've lost all hope in a person or an organization 
being able to improve and flourish. In fact, the, the tone kind of suggests that you hope that they don't flourish. You hope it doesn't go well. You hope they fall flat on their face. That's grumbling. And here's the problem. There will be some people in here this morning, and they have some legitimate constructive criticism to offer, and they won't because they don't want to be perceived as a grumbler. But there are others that are in here that, that, are, that are on the other side of that. First of all, let me say to those of you who might have crit constructive criticism, be, be free to offer your constructive criticism. If your motivation and your tone is going to reflect your hope of improvement in something, then people need to hear that. Just be careful how you say it. On the other hand, there are probably a few of us in here that are hearing me right now, and you're a grumbler, and you're hearing this, and you're thinking, I'm not a grumbler, I'm a constructive criticizer. The truth is, you need to hear Paul's warning about grumbling. It sounds bad because it is bad. Paul's point is, you can ruin Christian love and humility by grumbling. There's so much grumbling and complaining. There's, there's so much hoping for failure of another. Paul says, if we can get rid of this, we will stand out. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. In other words, you'll stand out. This world's so jacked up and so messed up. When you get this right, you stand out. You shine. Then we will have an impact. Word four for us to consider this morning, impact. When our motivation is right and when we're relying on the power of God and we have the proper character, getting rid of all grumbling, seeking to improve things, then we can have the impact that Paul describes in his closing lines. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not labor in vain. If you hold firmly to the song of Jesus, Jesus giving himself on a cross for our sins, self-giving, love, humility, if we hold to that love, that word tightly, we will be shaped by it. And as we are shaped by it, we are shaped by that love and that humility, and as we get rid of all grumbling, we will shine. Here's the cool thing. You know what happened in Philippi in the centuries to follow? We have an archaeological record. You know, they've gone and dug up a lot of that, and what they've discovered in the, in the centuries, the first through the fifth centuries, there's an archaeological record that suggests that there were about four or five churches that came to spring up in the city of Philippi, and one of those churches was the size of the agora that they had, which is that's significant, okay? That means it's a big church. It was a really big church. In a town that probably never grew over 15,000 people, this was a huge development in Philippi. When Paul got this church going, there might have been 50 people total. If they were lucky, there were 50. It would literally become thousands. Indeed, the Philippians shined the light of Christ and the city was transformed. Don't you long for that in your home? Don't you long for that where you, in your circle? Don't you long for that in, a, in our country? Now, I know hearing me say that and say, you know, let's go change the world. It's hard. It's hard. It's 
honestly, it's probably a pipe dream. But don't you long for that? If you long for that, let me just tell you something. It starts with you. It starts with you. Locking in and focusing in on motivation, character, power, and impact. Right thing for the right reason. Right thing for the right reason. I want you to wake up in the morning, God, in light of what you've done for me, you have forgiven me. I will never know what it is to be separated from you again. I'll never have to worry about my sin coming between me and you. I've been set free. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ and you think it's about trying harder, you don't get it. If you think what I'm selling you up here is a list of do's and don'ts, you don't get it. What I'm selling you is the best deal you're ever going to get. You trade your sin, your failure, your cracked up, jacked up life, and you give it to God and say, God, I need to be forgiven. And God says, I sent Jesus just for that reason. Happy to do that. I'm happy to. Would you just repent? Would you turn away and say, I need Jesus. And I will set you free. And you'll never know what it is ever again to feel like you have to run from my presence. You can run to me. That's the message of Jesus. Not try harder. Nobody wants that. The message of Jesus? Just come. Just come. Let me forgive you. Let me love you. And we believe at Cross Lane that the closer you get to Jesus the better your life is going to be because he will change you. I say this all the time. It's not my job to change you. I can't change you. The only one who can change you is Jesus. My job is to get you as close to Jesus as I can get you so that he can change you. And I don't care whether you've been a Christian your whole life. The closer you get to Jesus, the more your life is going to be changed. So if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, you need to do that. You don't need me to convince you. You know you need to do that. I don't know what holds you back. I don't know what scares you. Let's have a conversation about it. Come talk to me. Just say, Brad, I don't even know how to start the conversation. I know how to start the conversation, okay? Let's just talk about it. If, if not me, get to somebody that you know that's a believer. They can help you. But don't go another day and not have your sins forgiven and be set free by the the Father who sent the Son. Let me pray over us, and then uh, Shelby will come out and, and we'll, we'll worship out the door this morning. Father, would we have the humility that it takes to look in the mirror and understand that we need you, that we can't do this by ourselves? Would we have the humility that it takes to say, God, I, I'm gonna, I want to do this your way. I don't want to grumble and complain. That just takes away from your glory and your majesty. Would we have the right motivation? Would we have the power of you working in our lives? Would we be able to make an impact on our part of the world? Father, as Christians nationwide figure this out, we can turn this thing around where all these nuns are popping up. We care about them, Father. And, and if we really care about them, how we behave and what we look like matters to them. So it should matter to us. So Father, this morning as we get ready to walk out these doors, I just pray that you would be strong in us this week. Father, we love you.
pray it in Jesus' name.